Hello everyone, this is Dr. Mark Opler speaking. I'm very fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Andrew Cutler. Dr. Cutler, if I could trouble you to give our listeners a, a brief personal introduction, tell them a little bit about how you got into our field, what your research focus is, and why it matters, what it is about our work that inspires you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, first of all, and uh, I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So just by way of introduction, uh, I have always wanted to be a doctor. My father was actually a physician, and I grew up loving biology and science. I really also loved detective stories like Sherlock Holmes and even Encyclopedia Brown, which when I was really young. So when I went to medical school, <clears throat> I really imagined myself going into internal medicine, which I saw as detective work. You know, you get the data and you make the diagnosis, which is like solving a mystery. But a funny thing happened throughout med school. I realized that parts of the body were not as exciting. For instance, the heart, I learned, was sort of a pump with wires stuck in it, and the lungs were bellows, and the kidneys were filters. And then I took neuroscience and neuroanatomy, and I realized that the brain is really the most interesting organ in the body. And I realized that there were still many mysteries to unravel with the brain. And so I was uh, really leaning towards something to do with the brain. And then, of course, when I did my clinical rotations, and I realized a lot of internal medicine was following algorithms and didn't really seem to involve a lot of creativity. Uh, but then when I did my psychiatry rotation, uh, I, I really fell in love with psychiatry and especially brain chemistry. And at the time, this was kind of the dawn of the modern psychopharmacology era. So I was really excited about the these new developments and these new medicines that were coming out that seemed to promise even better efficacy and, and safety. So I decided, uh, I was at the University of Virginia at the time, and I decided to do a combined residency. They had a combined internal medicine psychiatry residency, and I ended up getting board certified in both internal medicine and psychiatry. And then along the way, I also did research training on dopamine receptor pharmacology. My mentor was using animal models to look at psychosis and schizophrenia. And that got me into research. And I always really wanted to do research and be a professor. That's where I saw my career going. So I started out my academic career at the University of Chicago doing psychopharmacology research. And I realized, this was the mid-90s, that it was really difficult being junior faculty. And I really was kind of overwhelmed with all the different things I had to do. <clears throat> and, and my research kept getting sort of put on the back burner and there was so much bureaucracy, it was hard to get studies going. So I actually was recruited to a hospital in Orlando, Florida that had a psychiatry division and wanted to do clinical trials. So I went, I went there and started doing clinical trials privately. And my goal here was to have academic quality research, but in a private setting using the streamline and the best business practices, less bureaucracy. That was a time I really caught a wave because that was a time when a lot of pharmaceutical companies were looking at doing research in private settings. They had mostly done it in academic settings. So it was one of those lucky right place, right time kind of things. And uh, since then, I've really been fortunate to, to do a lot of clinical trials on a variety of medications. And I'd say that my primary research focus has been really an outgrowth of my dopamine receptor research. And so the four areas clinically that really involve dopamine dysregulation that I've done work in and published in are schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, 
and ADHD. <clears throat> as far as why this matters uh, personally to me and why it inspires me is not only the patients I've met along the way, but I actually have uh, several family members with, manic, uh, with, with uh, medic, mental illnesses, including bipolar disorder and ADHD, and have always been fascinated by the behaviors and the impact that it's had. And uh, some small part of me hopes, of course, to find great treatments to help family members and others. Well, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Cutler. I, I certainly appreciate the importance both of being at the right place and right time, but you know, to to quote uh, another another great thinker, um, fortune favors the prepared mind, and it it sounds as that though is, it sounds as door. though yeah, there you go. It sounds mm -hmm. as though that that played no small part in the path that you've chosen. So thanks well, for sharing. Well, along that. the way, my other platitude is I'd rather be lucky than good sometimes. So I've had a lot of luck along the way. It certainly doesn't hurt. Let, let's go on. I, I wanted to ask you another question, if you don't mind. And sure. um, you know, this one is about the, the challenges that our field is facing. You know, specifically, mm -hmm. what do you see as the top three challenges in our current trial methodologies and the execution of studies? What, what are the three biggest challenges you feel that we're facing mm -hmm. right now? Well, I think the challenges grow out of the fact that having done this now, uh, this is actually my 26th year of doing clinical trials, trials have gotten a lot more complicated, and some of it by necessity, of course, but some of it for uh, other reasons. And of course, new technologies have been introduced. And so the problem that we have, especially in CNS drug development, is separating drug from placebo, which is a necessary requirement in the United States to get drugs FDA approved. And I see a lot of issues with that. Um, you know, the, the basic issue is what we're trying to do here is separate signal from noise. We're trying to detect a signal and minimize noise. And over the years, what has happened, not only in the U.S., but across the world, is we're seeing placebo response rising. The problem in the United States, though, is, is it's a double-edged sword. We're not only seeing placebo rise, we're actually seeing drug response drop. And so obviously when those two converge, you don't separate from placebo. And there's a lot of reasons uh, for this. And I've written some articles on it actually, but I think the issues have to do with a couple of things since you're asking me to name a top three challenge. One of them, of course, is to identify the appropriate patient and even more than that, the appropriate biologic target for your potential intervention. And the problem in psychiatry is the brain is so darn complicated um, and we're forced to use diagnoses that are clinical diagnoses and not necessarily biologic targets. And so over time, I've seen many really interesting and unique drugs with unique mechanisms fail because they're probably working well for a subset of people with this clinical condition. For instance, schizophrenia, I like to say, is not schizophrenia. It's the schizophrenias. You know, there's probably many different pathologies here. And so it's not always a failure of the drug. It's a failure of our ability to, to select the right patients that actually have the biologic target we're looking for. So that I would see as one of the mm -hmm. top challenges. Right. Next, next, I would see a big challenge we have is in uh, minimizing noise. Um, the problem is, of course, that as people have been chasing uh, this, this smaller signal, if you will, or smaller separated from placebo, They've done things like ramped up the number of patients and the number of sites that are needed in a study. 
And there, of course, you're actually paradoxically introducing more noise and maybe making it even harder to detect. The other thing along those lines uh, is that as we've had a lot of, of issues with payers for new treatments and getting new treatments paid for, companies are, are very cognizant now. They're thinking even earlier in their development programs of how do we start generating data that's going to help us get this medication uh, paid for in the marketplace, which is a very reasonable thing, and also mm -hmm. market marketing considerations. So you, you get people adding me various measures such as quality of life and healthcare economics and things like this. And again, what we're trying to do is to detect a signal, and the more of these kind of outcomes and variables that, that get put in and the more rating scales, the more potential noise gets into the system. So that that's something that I think about and worry about as well. Um, so I think those are, if I've mentioned three, I, I guess there is another um, important challenge, and that is integrating technology. The technology is evolving so rapidly in our society in general, but especially as it relates right. to medicine, medicine, healthcare, and clinical trials. And I like to say, we all know technology is going to change what we do in clinical trials. We just don't know how yet. So there's a variety of these emerging technologies that I think people are struggling to figure out. Hmm. How, how much of this do we incorporate? Where do we use it? Things like that. Absolutely. You know, you know just, just shift gears a little bit. Could, could you share with us a couple of the, the developments in clinical research of the past year? It's been a, mm -hmm. a remarkable mm -hmm. past 12 months. Mm -hmm. What are the, the developments of the past 12 months that you think are most exciting? And why do you yeah. think they will have an impact on the lives of our patients? Well, I, I have to agree with you. Um, I like to say that the, the past year or two is the most excited I've been about clinical trials in CNS and psychiatry since I got started all those years ago. It seems that finally um, the industry had sorted itself out a little bit. You know, for a while we went through this problem where large pharma was starting to walk away from CNS and psychiatry trials. And, um, you know, we were starting to move towards smaller biotechs and mid-sized companies. And I think you know, the financing and who's doing the research has sorted itself out. And, and also the technology's evolved to where we've had some significant developments. And just a couple of things that I've been thinking about include the development of technology such as wearables, which uh, allows you to collect so much more data in a less intrusive way, you know, mm -hmm. as far as a patient's activity level when they're sleeping and uh, even things like monitoring your cell phone usage to see how often are you on social media, how, how many phone calls are you making, which can talk about are you getting more active, are you having meaningful social interactions, quality of life, are you right. walking more and getting off the couch. So to me, wearables is a, is a big one um, that, that, of course, is going to revolutionize not only research but people's lives, just like social media has. Mm -hmm. As far as specific uh, medication developments, the two areas that are really hot right now that I'm real excited about is in the field of depression. Uh, you know, for a long time, we focused on medications that are basically ways to manipulate the three classic monoamines, which is serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. And we've gone at various ways, such as reuptake inhibition or binding to receptors. But, you know, our treatments have not worked well for a lot of patients. And just finally, in the past year or two, We've had some very positive data come out on a couple of really very different mechanisms. One of them is a, a ketamine kind of drug, S-ketamine, uh, which is inhaled nasally. And this is working through the glutamate system, a totally different chemical. 
And uh, that, that's a company, Janssen has that, but other companies have other kinds of glutamate-type ketamine-like drugs, if you will. The other is a company called Sage, which has a drug that's working on GABA-A receptors. And glutamate and GABA are the two predominant chemicals in our brain. Glutamate is the major excitatory neurotransmitter. GABA is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter. Both of these treatments have been shown to have rapid uh, effects, rapidly effective. I'm talking hours, if not a day or two. And traditionally with the monoamine medications, you have to wait several weeks, two to four weeks to see anything. So I'm really excited about this possibility of helping a lot more patients and helping them faster, if you will, to start getting better. Uh, the other area, as far as uh, a therapeutic area that's really exciting to me right now is, is schizophrenia. And um, there was recently announced very positive results on a study with a very different mechanism of action, a drug that actually works through receptors called TAR1 receptors, which are trace amino acid receptors. Mm -hmm. um, this is this is a, a chemical system in the brain that has only recently been discovered. Even uh, in schizophrenia, most of our drugs are working exclusively or predominantly through dopamine, and there's a lot of consequences of that. So our hope has been to find new targets uh, as well. So, you know, again, trying to find these new targets and new mechanisms to help more people who aren't as well helped by our traditional medicines and maybe even improve upon tolerability and safety. That's really what's exciting to me right now. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, that, that certainly echoes what I've heard from a number of other luminaries in the field. And mm -hmm. recently, one of them made, made a comment to me that, you know, in, in evolution, there's this concept of punctuated equilibrium, that we go through these periods of stasis followed by periods mm -hmm. of an intense evolution and mm -hmm. activity. Yeah. Does it feel as though we're entering one of those new, busy, highly active stages of, of psychopharmacology now where mm -hmm. old assumptions mm -hmm. are being thrown away, new, mm -hmm. new mm -hmm. paradigms are coming to light that are totally changing mm -hmm. the way mm -hmm. we think about treatment of psychiatry? Absolutely true. You know, there's one other quick thing I did forget to mention. In, um, in the past uh, two years, in 2017, mm -hmm. we had two new drugs approved to treat uh, tardive dyskinesia. And this is right. very personally important to me because I've, I've worked with schizophrenia for so long and I used to run a Clozeril clinic. And, you know, it was terrible to see patients develop this permanent movement disorder called tardive dyskinesia, which is a consequence of our antipsychotics. Mm -hmm. We had nothing to treat this for essentially, 1950 was the first uh, dopamine-blocking antipsychotic lepromazine. And from 1950 to 2017, which is 67 years, we had nothing to treat it. And these work through a very interesting mechanism called VMAT2 inhibition. And why this is important is because this is actually an intracellular transporter. Most of our medicines work right. on the outsides of cells, if you will, and this one works inside. So it's yet another exciting development, new mechanism of action that opens the door to possibilities. Very exciting. Very exciting. You know, let me, let me ask you this. I mean, we've talked about the past year. We've talked about the past challenges. Mm -hmm. What's coming next? Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, mm -hmm. just to focus mm -hmm. the question a little bit, what mm -hmm. do you see as the top three opportunities mm -hmm. in clinical mm -hmm. development in neuroscience? Yeah, well, in addition to, I think, uh, de further developing this idea of rapid onset, a rapidly active antidepressants, um, I think we have to refine that quite a bit. We need ones that are ideally taken orally and have 
less uh, risk and toxicity. Some of the, these rapid uh, treatments now are intravenous, for instance, or in the case of the S-ketamine intranasal. So it'd be nice to continue to have more of those. Uh, another would be we have a, just a huge uh, need for just the treatment of schizophrenia in general, and particularly the symptoms that are especially the most impairing are what's called negative symptoms and cognitive impairment. And mm -hmm. These are the symptoms that keep someone from meaningfully engaging socially or occupationally. And uh, schizophrenia is a especially pernicious illness because it hits people in their late teens, early 20s, right when they're getting ready to launch and, and enter life and, and develop. And uh, so this is an illness that really affects people for their entire adult lives. And so I'd love to see more there. And I think, again, as the science is evolving, we may be getting, getting somewhere there. I was recently an advisory board with a company that has developed a, uh, a, new, a new medicine, which is actually in front of the FDA right now, that has some very interesting intracellular mechanisms and may indirectly be affecting the glutamate system again. Which, mm -hmm. So it works on dopamine, serotonin, but also glutamate, and that may help some people who haven't been helped with schizophrenia. So uh, I, I depression and schizophrenia, but the other one is, is in the ADHD field, which is another area of interest of mine. What the world needs, I like to say, is a non-stimulant that actually works reliably um, because we do have stimulants that are very effective, but of course they come with significant baggage and risk. Right. Um, things like abuse and diversion, but also significant cardiovascular uh, risk. And there are a couple of non-stimulants in development that I'm I'm kind of excited about. Uh, so uh, those are some of the areas. I guess the, there's another big big need, and that is bipolar depression, mm -hmm. where <clears throat> you know right now we only have three medications FDA approved. Uh, we have many approved to treat mania, but as far as the depression and bipolar disorder is an illness predominantly of depression, actually more depression, recurrent depression, and that's what holds people back. So we really need more effective treatments and more options for the depressive phase, in particular bipolar, I think. Well, well, thank you for that. That certainly gives us a very good sense of the landscape. To finish up, mm -hmm. let me ask you about your predictions for mm -hmm. the next 12 months. You know, as you said, the, the last 12 months or so have been just intense and exciting What's mm -hmm. happening next? What do you think will surprise us? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think the, the focus of our field may shift to? And, mm -hmm. and are there particular programs that you're excited to see read out mm -hmm. one way yeah. or another in the next 12 months? Well, I think continuing uh, on the theme of rapid acting antidepressants, there is a program with a compound called rupastinil that a company called Allergan has that works on on the NMDA glutamate receptor, which is where ketamine works, but in a, in a very different part of the receptor. And the problem with ketamine, people may realize, is that it can cause psychotic-like symptoms and dissociative symptoms, so-called PCP-like reaction. But because this drug is working in a different site, it does not seem to cause those side effects. And I was involved in that program, and, and we saw some just dramatic uh, improvement, dramatically effective antidepressant effects with people. So I'm certainly hopeful that, that that might read out positively because uh, a lot of money was invested into this program and uh, <clears throat> a lot of work uh, was put into this. And I'm hoping that we can show that these large-scale programs 
uh, can can be positive that we can uh, develop these new medications. <clears throat> so that's one area. The other area is in the area of, of something I haven't talked about yet. I've talked a little bit about technology, but there's an area that I've been involved with from very early on, and it's called digital therapeutics. And what that means is actually digital treatments, digital interventions, and one that we're working on, and again for ADHD, is a, a therapeutic video game, if you will. This is a video game that is developed based on principles of neuroscience that adapts as the child or even adult. This video game has actually been used for ADHD, but is also starting to be looked at for autism and for adults mm -hmm. with Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's dementia. So as the person interacts with the game and plays the game, the game adapts and gets a little harder, a little more challenging. And theoretically, what you're doing is training the brain and developing and strengthening circuits of attention and potentially inhibition um, of unwanted impulses. And so it's almost like you're uh, working out your, your muscle. You, you lift weights, you work out your muscle, your muscle, you can gradually lift more and more, your muscle gets stronger and bigger, this kind of thing. So I'm very excited about that kind of possibility. This is something that I like to call going beyond the pill. Um, we, for so long, we've thought of treatments and medications as pills. But obviously, we can administer now medications intravenously, intranasally, patches, various ways. But also, potentially, we can have interventions and treatments that are digital and not a pill or not a medication. So those are a couple of areas that I'm most excited about, and they're not that far off. These are things that are coming right now. And I guess, again, uh, this area of, of wearables, that just fascinates me. Um, you know, for years we've been using these clunky uh, watches that people wear that they're called act actigraphy or actimeters uh, that look like they came from uh, Back to the Future, you know, DeLorean strapped to your wrist. They're very clunky. <laughs> But but now we have these sleeker things you can wear, but also monitoring. Uh, pe people now have such a personal interaction with their cell phones. They come with us everywhere. We are interacting with right. them constantly. And so there's a wealth of, of data and information there that we can use that may lead to further uh, treatments, further ways of monitoring the effectiveness of our treatments, uh, maybe unlock some more of the clues and mysteries of how the brain works. Very exciting stuff, and and you know, I, again, I I feel as though I I have to say this. I, I couldn't agree more with your conclusions. Uh, you know, I heard I heard uh, the uh, some of the results on some of the recent digital medicine programs, and, and just the the potential that they're unlocking is just mm -hmm. enormous. Um, I also think we, we almost need to start thinking of the cell phone, the smartphone, as another organ. Yes, yes. That, that can tell us a lot about the health of the individual. Mm -hmm. That's how things are evolving. Well, one other, uh, one other yeah, quick thing as far as technology. Um, there's a technology that is actually not brand new but is, is being used increasingly, and that's a technology that – assists in measuring improvement on medications that may detect changes even before the, the patient or the person notices anything. And one mm -hmm. of those is uh, facial recognition software. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, Dr. Catherine Hamer and, and Guy Goodwin's lab in Oxford, but there's others working on this where uh, <clears throat> patients who are depressed have something called negative cognitive bias. And so everything just seems more negative. And if they look at a picture of a face that's neutral, not not really happy, not really sad. They will overinterpret it as sad or anxious uh, more often, and they may misinterpret it that way. 
Now, if someone is given an, an antidepressant or medication that is going to be effective, that reverses and they can more accurately identify the emotion of the face within a day or two, well before they notice feeling better or anything else is, uh, is seen. And so I think about the potential for this to identify someone who is responding or potentially going to respond well to a treatment early on, and then you can stay on the right track. And maybe if they're not responding, rather than having to wait and, and potentially have the illness progress, maybe we can switch treatments and do something else. Another other way of applying this is uh, something I heard about a couple of years ago where computers can analyze the prosody of people's voices and accurately predict if someone is going into a depressive episode or, or becoming psychotic. So potentially we can catch people before they slip into a serious uh, mental state uh, that makes it harder to treat and maybe do things even ideally prophylactically or very early on to prevent negative consequences. So th those are the challenges and the exciting things I see. Dr. Cutler, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. I've really enjoyed Certainly. this conversation. And uh, on behalf Likewise. of myself and my listeners, thanks again and look forward to speaking with you soon. Me too. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today.